All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Uh, how's it going? Are you all right? This is it. This is the week, the beginning of the holiday season. This is where we've already weighed whether maybe some of you still are on the fence. I don't know. We've already weighed whether or not we're going to have people over. We're going to have family over. We're going to go see our families. We're not going to see our families. We're going to go to a thing at someone else's house. who We don't really like that much, but we don't have any other plans and we can put up with it for a night. They're okay people, but we don't really hang out with them any other time, but it's nice to be around other people with families and whatnot. If we're not going to go see our family maybe you're doing that thing or maybe you're just having a quiet night at home avoiding the entire thanksgiving event and situation maybe you you do that you just have like a sandwich uh maybe a soda and you, you kind of uh, uh relish in the fact that you've turned your back on this family and national tradition but yet you still watch the dog show the next day because that's something to be excited about huh the grooming, right? All those different shapes of dogs, purebreds, that's exciting. The parade, not great. Anyways, I guess my point is, how are you fortifying your mind and heart in preparation for, I, you know, I don't want to say confrontation. Maybe some of you are just can't wait. You can't wait to get to mom and dad's house or grandma's house, or maybe you've got kids and they're excited to see grandma, even though you don't really like her that much. I don't know what your situation, but I know it's on your mind. It's on my mind, but I'm focusing on food. Uh, today on the show, I talked to uh, Kenneth Lonergan. Kenneth Lonergan is uh, a playwright and screenwriter. You might know him from winning an Academy Award for Manchester by the Sea. He also did the film Margaret, wrote and directed that, and You Can Count on Me was his film. Several plays. I just saw one of them in New York that's been revived, I think. I don't know if it's called a revival, if it's just put up again. Is it still a revival if it's not old as hell? But uh, the Waverly Gallery, which he wrote in uh, 2000, is now up in New York. It's got Elaine May in it. Joan Allen is in it. Uh, Michael Sarah is in it. Great writer, and I was a little intimidated. I always assume I'm going to be outgunned intellectually by people who do uh, who write theater. I, I don't know why that is. I, I guess I, I have a place in my in my heart and in my mind that is threatened by people that have the wherewithal to write plays. I guess I put a lot of a stock in uh, the possibility of theater and what it can do. And I find that uh, some plays are more abstract. Those are the ones that always get me. After I think it was early on when I started reading or seeing Sam Shepard plays where I'm like, where the fuck does this come from? But uh, I'm still sort of uh, intimidated and, uh, and um, nervous when I talk to playwrights. But uh, Kenneth Lonergan and myself had a, a great conversation. He came to the hotel in New York and we sat there uh, and listened to Sirens. Uh, through the window and and talked about uh, New York and about plays and about all kinds of stuff. It was actually a interesting thing happened after after with the conversation. Maybe I'll remember to tell you what that was. Uh, there's a Black Friday sale at PodSwag.com, which is where you can get all WTF merch. I want to make sure you know this. It's forty percent off the entire site this Friday, so you can get discounts on items from lots of your favorite podcasts. Go to PodSwag.com. That's P-O-D-S-W-A-G.com to check out 
everything that's there. Or go right to podswag.com slash WTF and get a new Draplin WTF shirt or some of the new signed posters or a signed copy of Waiting for the Punch. It's all 40% off this Friday, November 22nd. And I did put those posters in, those hand-screened giant posters from my Phoenix show. Just got those over there, just signed a bunch of books. So, yeah, do that. So how are you preparing? What's going on? Thanksgiving's coming up. I, I think I'll, I'll do a dispatch from Florida. I haven't gone down there in a couple of years and uh, because I've been shooting generally. Glow is not going to start shooting until after Thanksgiving this year. So I get to go down and I generally cook and I'm making some changes this year. It's a, it's a big choice. It's a big decision. How will, they, how will they be received? The changes to the menu that I'm going to incorporate. And this is, I, I do think pretty heavily about it, about the food, because uh, I haven't been eating much. It's time to start eating again, by the way. I'm glad I waited till Thanksgiving and I waited till the beginning of the, uh, the glow uh, season, the shooting. I took off a bunch of weight. I took off like, Jesus, as of today, probably around 15 pounds. And most of it was just in preparing to uh, to start shooting again because those pants that I wear on Glow, the one pair of pants, I think we're integrating a second pair perhaps this season, but they get a little snug towards the end of the shooting. There's just food all around. I eat shit all the time over there. Well, I try not to, but then you end up eating. Yeah, you know, I'll just have, the, have a half a donut. You know what? I'll have a quarter of donut and then you know, I'll loop back around. I'll get that other quarter. And if no one ate that other half, maybe I'll eat that. Eating a donut in that way can be a, it, it can take a half a day. But uh, so I'm ready to go eat Thanksgiving. I, I know you're probably just wondering, well, how are you changing your menu, Mark? What, what, what is it that you're doing? I'll tell you. The big change is that I generally do a sweet potato thing, just a standard kind of like streusel topped uh, sweet, sweet potato thing. That's almost like a dessert. But I think um, I think that's out. I think it's out. And I know some of you are going to be like, why, why would you remove that? I'm like, because there's a healthier and more interesting way to eat sweet, squashy, sort of sweet potato-y kind of shit. And I've come up with this, this recipe that I believe I invented. And I'm going to share this with you because it's simple. If you take that, well, how do you say it? Kambocha? Is it kambocha squash? Kabocha, maybe? You know, the squash, it looks like a pumpkin that doesn't, uh, that's fighting, turning yellow. It's kind of... It, it, Kabocha, I believe, is a squash. It doesn't matter. Do you want me to tell you the recipe? Do you want me to tell it to you? Because this is what I'm doing. I'm sharing a recipe with you. That's something friends do. So you take the kabocha, you cut it up, you gut it, you take all the seeds out, you clean all the stringy shit out of it, and then you slice it into little triangles. I don't make them too thin. I like them maybe two and a half inches on one side and then up to the point. And then what I do, I'm telling you, it's good. Get some ghee, get some clarified butter, you know, melt, make it so it's liquidy and then put it in a little bowl and then just coat each piece of the kabocha squash with the ghee and then sprinkle all of it with garam masala, which is a, a an Indian spice. It's got usually like cumin, coriander, some cardamom, cloves, black pepper, cinnamon, sometimes nutmeg. And they, they have, it, it, there's different versions of it. But just do the ghee and do the garam masala and then salt them up and then roast them until they brown a bit. And that's it. It's like all those, like half of those spices, half of the Indian spices just happen to be Thanksgiving spices. So you're kind of sneaking in something exotic with something that is also well-founded in the tradition of uh, hackneyed 
turkey day stuff. Am I am I making too much out of it? Do you think that maybe my obsession with uh, this squash as I head to Florida in the next couple of days to cook might be masking some of the other feelings I might be having about going down to Thanksgiving and seeing my mom? My brother's coming down and flying him down. We haven't been together with my mother in a long time for Thanksgiving. My cousins, time passing, people getting older. And it's Florida too. I, you know, it, by the end of the week, it could be underwater or there could be chaos in the streets over some predicament. Florida is a chaotic place that is uh, sadly uh, trending red, but that red will be uh, put out by the, 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 the slow sinking of the state because of a denial that it's happening and that we have anything to do with it. Water in the streets in Florida, but I'm telling you, the squash. The squash is going to be the shit. Don't be afraid to eat the skin. Don't be afraid to eat the skin in life. A quick email. This one was funny. I I like to try to help out. You know what I mean? I'm not perfect in any way, but if I can help out, that's nice. Marin drops F-bomb in my meeting. Uh, That's the subject line. Good day, Mark. I drive to work every day and listen to your podcast as I snake through the shitty Sydney traffic that inevitably happens in the central business district where I work. I finished listening to the Curve Vile episode and the Busy Phillips episode began to play. As I pulled into my garage, it was only six minutes and 56 seconds into it before I jumped out of my car and went up to my office. I was in my weekly sales meeting with all my offices across Australia on a video conference call and had my phone on the boardroom table as I was expecting an important call about a contract, so it was within eyesight. With the ringer switched off, just as my colleague in Melbourne was speaking, all that was heard from Sydney was, who gives a fuck? Followed by, I fuck up the lead, who gives a shit? Yes, for some inexplicable reason, your podcast started playing on my phone by itself, on speaker. What was creepy is that the phone was untouched for 30 minutes and some poltergeist shit went down as I scrambled embarrassingly to stop this tirade being confused as my own, as I am Canadian, and to an untrained ear, people around the other offices may have actually thought it was me swearing. Coincidentally, you did actually say what I was feeling about my weekly meeting, so thanks for that. After the meeting, my colleagues in Sydney asked what the podcast was, and I told them WTF. You might actually get three more signups. Well, I wasn't fired, and people saw the humor and what happened. Thanks for breaking up the monotonous Monday meeting dread with a well-timed F-bomb. Cheers, Justin. Glad to help out, Justin. Glad to help out. There's one other one here. Big ask. Hello, I have a huge request to ask of Mark Marin. I would be... Super grateful if whoever reads this could pass along my message to him. Well, I'm reading it. My mom is a huge fan of the WTF podcast. She has a Boomer Lives mug that she proudly displays as her main coffee mug, and she's the one usually telling me about a new great episode. She's been having some medical issues lately with her shoulder involving multiple surgeries, and she's really bummed out about it because her recovery is not going well. This all being said... My huge request is this. I was wondering if there was any way I could buy some merch as a present and have Mark sign it to her. She's going in for further surgery in December, and she's been in a really sad place for a while, and I just know that something like this would really help her spirits. I know this is a huge ask, and Mark, if you read this, thanks for even considering. Sincerely, Phil. Yeah, we can work that out, Phil, but then you got to buy it, and you got to send it to me, and it's a long long, uh, process, so... I then said, what's her name to Phil? And he said, uh, her, he said, thanks for the reply. Her name is Rosanna. And I don't want to mention last names, but Rosanna with the shoulder issues. 
It's going to be all right, all right? It's hard to bounce back when you're older. It takes time. But, you know, you're lucky it's just a shoulder and not an organ or a brain or, uh, or losing a foot. Is that, did that help, Rosanna? <laughs> okay. All right. So, Kenny Lonergan. Kenneth Lonergan. I don't think I know him well enough to call him Kenny, but I think some people call him Kenny. Kenneth Lonergan. We talked in my hotel room in New York. We had a nice conversation. And I, before I talked to him, I made sure to catch up on some stuff. I never watched Margaret. And, and I know it was sort of a, a movie that um, got mixed response. And he, I, I, I knew there was some sort of, I don't know if it was controversy, but, uh, but it was a difficult movie on a lot of levels. And I talked to him about it, but I watched it and I thought it was a pretty stunning film. And what is, what, what's my point about this? Okay, I'll tell you. Kenneth and I had one of those conversations after the mics went off that I wish it was on, but we were talking about, uh, we talked about Margaret during the interview, but then afterwards, because Elaine May is in his play, Elaine May, who was in the very influential and famous comedy team, Nichols and May, but also went on to write many movies, Elaine May directed The Heartbreak Kid, and I brought up The Heartbreak Kid after we turned the mics off which is a great movie, one of my favorite movies with uh, Charles Grodin, Sybil Shepherd, Eddie Albert. And I'd, I just watched Margaret, but we talked about The Heartbreak Kid being one of the great movies that really rides the line appropriately between tragedy and comedy in a way that's just painful and beautiful. It's, it's, it's a stunning movie. And then I asked him, you know, whatever happened, because Elaine May's daughter was in the Heartbreak Kid. And I'm like, whatever happened to her? And, and he was like, she's in Margaret. And I'm like, who? And and she played uh, a part in Margaret that was devastating. Her name's Jeannie Berlin. And I had no idea what happened to her. And I just watched her in a three-hour movie be a genius. And it was so thrilling, really. Uh, I just love moments like that. But, but sadly, we didn't have that conversation on the mics. But uh, kudos and uh, respect to the Heartbreak Kid. Anyways, I'm trying to introduce Kenneth Lonergan. Elaine May's a genius. Elaine May's great in his play. Okay, so this is me talking to Kenneth Lonergan in a hotel room in New York City. His play, The Waverly Gallery, is now on Broadway with Elaine May, Joan Allen, Lucas Hedges, David Cromer, and Michael Sarah. It's playing at the Golden Theater through the end of January. Okay? Listen to us talk. <laughs> Nice to see you. We've never met before, ever? No, I don't think so. I feel like, I don't know why, I guess I feel like I know you. I don't know why that happens sometimes with people. Or maybe we have common friends. It's possible. I don't know. I've talked to people in your movies. I've talked to Casey. Yeah. You know, for the movie. Yeah. I might have seen you at a award show of some kind. It's possible. Yeah. There were a lot of them last two years ago. No kidding, right? Oh, yeah. To start, like, I saw the play... The older play that is up again, mm-hmm. Waverly Gallery last yeah. night. Oh yeah. Now who? Now how much? When something like that is redone, how much do you have to do with it? Uh, it depends completely yeah. on the production, but this one I had a lot to. I was there a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't direct it. Lila Neugebauer directed it, but um, yeah, I was there a lot. You know, very involved in the casting and the whole process. You know, if you're the playwright, you can do as much as as you want really. if you're if you're around they're like yeah let him come yeah in. they it's like to yeah. have you around if you're yeah. not a pain in the ass which <laughs> you try not to be and what was different about staging at this time uh well it's different when it's a you know the first time it was staged in 1980 uh, 2000 and uh you know the first time you ever do a play it's yeah. a little more uh 
maybe you're a little more precious about how it's done and you're you know it's like the it's a big deal this is a big deal too but i don't know you just i i sorry i guess you're just more possibly a little less flexible yeah. if you're the writer but i mean right. you have to be flexible anyway because it's a cast and the director and right doesn't work big sets bigger sets well now yeah no now there's bigger sets no because it's on broadway now it was on off broadway before so originally was it just one set it was one set with a rotate with a turntable at the very end. Oh. Uh, it's a hard, you know. I, when I wrote the play, I wasn't really thinking too clearly about the sets. It's a little awkward the way the set goes because it goes back and forth between two locations until the middle of the second act, and then there's suddenly a hallway, and then there's suddenly a new apartment that we haven't seen. Right. And it doesn't sound like a big problem, but it can be because in you have to theater. in a smaller theater, even in the bigger theater, that's still hard to solve because if you have one set, you've got this big space that you don't use until the last scene. Uh, if you don't do that, then you have to figure out a way to introduce it in the middle of the action. Also, it's a continuous thing. They go from the hallway into the final apartment and you have to figure out how, it's an inter- it's a design challenge yeah. because not elegantly thought out by the writer. And that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when now it's it, it's very it's very autobiographical. Yeah, yeah it is. And it, and you grew up here in New York. Yeah, yeah. And that like cuz I I cuz like I grew up with some of that same Jewish history. Mhm. And Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in New Mexico, but oh, my yeah. family's from Jersey. So uh-huh. I had a, a communist great aunt in Fort Lee. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had, you know, I had my grandma Goldie in New Jersey. Yeah. My grandma Eleanor in Bayonne. Yeah. Asbury Park. But I, I just find that, like, that that whole generation, that history, that somebody that has that proximity to, to the Nazis and to that kind of stuff, yeah. that it, they, they're, they're almost all gone. Yeah, they're pretty much gone now. Uh, I guess there's a few hanging on, but, you know, my grandmother was born in 1903. Yeah. And she was 80 in her late, late 80s, in the, in the late 80s. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, she'd be, you know, 115 now. So, yeah, they're it's pretty much gone. And it's like, is it like sort of this amazing gift to have to, like, I guess we're really the last generation of grandkids that were able to talk about that. And even the way that the set is, is designed with that type of art, there's something very specific about that sort of progressive, old school Jewish experience Yeah, that, that really reads. And Elaine May did a great job with it. Yeah, she's amazing. And the whole thing, you know, the, the, and she's from my grandmother and the character in the play is from a very particular demographic graphic she grew up in brooklyn her parents were immigrants she uh but then she quickly came to manhattan and greenwich village and was lived a kind of a bohemian lifestyle right. she was a, she was a soft american communist she yeah. was interested in the art scene she was mostly mostly interested in socializing uh and uh and but she was very politically active was a member of the american labor party and did all sorts of Went to lots of meetings with people like Dashiell Hammett, and yeah. lived around the corner from Eleanor Roosevelt after after FDR had died, and uh, used to see her walking her dog in the park, and she kind of knew everybody. Yeah, uh, and really kind of exemplified the Greenwich Village scene in the forties and fifties. Do you still live in the city? Yeah, I do. I live in uh, Soho now. Do you find like are are you are you experiencing because some of that uh, there was some nostalgia involved in 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 looking in the way they projected some of the film pieces mm-hmm. onto the set? Yeah, is does your heart sort of break for what was the city? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's very much so. And I, 
I mean, the city's never stayed. It's always been in flux. It's right. always changing. But it's part of the play. Yeah, it is part of the play. But and I don't. It's hard to miss New York City in the 1970s. It was such a sewer. But there was. It's now seems to me to be kind of getting back to that. It's dirtier. It's noisier. The construction's oh, gone insane. It's horrible. And uh, the you know the whole city's been taken over by these buildings and all these construction projects. The subway's a disaster. It's really gotten the infrastructure's breaking. Infrastructure down, but, is a disaster. Uh, but am I wrong? and noticing that like uh, it feels like I don't really know who the people are here anymore well I don't feel quite that way I feel no. like it's still the same balance there's still a balance of native New Yorkers people who come in from the outside and then commuters are coming in and out you know there's but not that. as many can live here no I mean, it's much Yorkers. more expensive yeah, to yeah. live here yeah no it is I mean my grandmother wasn't wealthy but she bought a building you know she always had some money because her father was pretty well off and they bought a building on washington place in 1940 i don't think for a lot of money and she was a landlady to you know small eight unit apartment building what happened to the building it's been sold but uh uh and now they're redoing it i'm sure they're gonna you know it's been under construction for about a year and a half maybe two years and i know it's gonna be some 20 million dollar single residence uh palace really oh yeah i know that's yeah those people where are they coming from i don't know i think they're most i think a lot of them are foreign i think yeah, right? a lot of them uh i think the i think the building was sold to a uh, german corporation of some kind and i don't know who they sell it to i don't know who could afford those rents you look at the apartments for sale in new york city it's like 20 million dollars seven million dollars for yeah. a little one i mean it's really gone crazy i can't ever tell like because i spent time here i lived here for many years and i, I can't tell if i'm being like old and sort of like well back in the day it was this or that and the people were different but it just feels like the the tone of the city has gotten uh it not i don't I, I, maybe it's because there seemed to be a more vital art scene i don't know where you came up in, in uh, playwriting um here i mean i i think this art scene is i think everything that's in it is still here yeah. except for the middle income people who are able to live in manhattan but uh which is a huge difference but I mean, to me, it's the physical. I mean, we're listening to sirens right now. You never yeah. don't hear sirens anymore. You never don't hear construction. You never jackhammers. Took me 50, forty minutes to get here to get forty blocks. Yeah, um, there's no way to get around. Uh, subway's broken. The streets are clogged, uh, and all this construction creates more and more traffic problems, and will create traffic problems when it's done because the. Yeah. People have to put, you know, people have to go somewhere. They're not the going to stop making people and they're not going to stop making cars. No, and they're not going to stop building these buildings. Uh, it's just like this. It's literally like the face of greed. These fucking buildings. I just hate them. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I don't know what fills them. Every time I'm in a hotel like this and I just look across the way yeah. at people working during the week, I'm sort of like, oh, my God. Well, What's a, happening over there? A lot there? of them go bust. I mean, NYU, for instance, is building this enormous, you know, they keep building and building and building in the village, and they can't, and they just, it's, they just, the people who are, I don't know a lot about it, but like the people who get the contracts and provide the contracts are making a fortune. The school is not able to put enough students in these tr dorms. Right. Uh, and it's not a, it's not a money-making proposition in the end, except for the people who skim off the top when it's, when they're being built. So that's kind of who's taken over the city. It was so always just empty buildings. They're, they're just, they, yeah, I think so. And ghost vessels, but, uh, it's not for the people who live here. Right. And New York has never been in totally for the people who live right. here, but now it's just, there's no sense of public life at all. Uh, it's more like it's kind of like the whole city is like a big fuck you to the people who are here because you cannot get around yeah and uh 
it's just and I've lived here my whole life and it's you you know part of living in New York as you know is always complaining about how different it is and how it's gotten worse but it really really has so, like so it's the same evolution that's in the play that kind of yeah, yeah. It, except now we you know what it's turning into it lacks any real character yeah, and these neighborhoods, you know, I live in the I used to live in the village yeah. and now live in Soho, Bleecker Street, even during the big changes in the 60s and 70s was still local businesses that had been there for a long time in the last 10, 15 years they've been wiped out, it's Ralph Lauren and and um all these designer stores and now they're all shut cuz no one not even Ralph Lauren could pay those rents. And now so you can just buy online. Yeah, so so Bleecker just, Street, they wipe out the local businesses and then they collapse under the weight of their own uh expenses and then they don't then then they don't uh they're not certainly not going to sell those spaces to local businesses anymore so what does the future hold it's, it's more it's, of this i think it's like it i mean honestly you walk around here it's like a dystopian society it's a whole country not believe i know you cannot believe what's out there just getting to the theater i live a pretty you know exalted lifestyle compared to most people you know yeah not super rich but anyone who's you know doing well is doing better than everybody else and my god you get the, the, just going back and forth to work is like it's like a marathon of garbage noise and <laughs> and honking horns we still we haven't we've been here for 10 minutes we haven't heard the sirens stop once <laughs> well i'm trying to like figure out it's like i watched uh i watched margaret last night because i hadn't seen it i would seen the other movies and i've seen the the one play but i don't get to the theater a lot because i don't live here and, uh, you, you know, when I was watching the play and realizing that, you know, you're half Jewish, half Irish. Yeah. And I, I found that there was sort of a, a like I could see an, a, a balance in the writing, you know, that, that in the sense that, you know, you seem to be existentially Irish and intellectually Jewish. <laughs> well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know about that. <laughs> no, but I mean, there, it, it's not the, the message because of the character that Elaine May plays your grandmother, you know, is 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 naturally sort of buoyant and, and engaged yeah. and intelligent and charming and funny even in in the middle of her losing her mind there's sort of a comedy there there's a pace to it yeah right and with michael Sarah as well that that, that you there is a, a deliberate sense of comedy there but there is no escaping the bleakness no there really isn't and, and i guess that's an honest way to look at life but it seems fundamentally uh irish to me oh i see yeah i guess so um shoulder it well the, you know i think the play is supposed to be a little a, somewhat of an argument against sentimentality we all go through these difficult and terrible things uh, not all day long and not every day and not every year but when you do it's it's uh i don't know i think it's worthwhile to be to be frank about it yeah, uh, but also like I feel like it, but the interesting thing about there was never an argument in the play, and even in, when you wrote it, uh, it seems that even at that time uh, there was sort of a, a, a natural sort of uh, let's put her in a home. But they, you know, yeah, they didn't. I mean, it didn't work that way. Uh, and in the play, and in, in my in my life, my mom just didn't want to put my grandmother in a home and she also it's a little hard you know the problem is with all elderly people or is, is uh, who are not doing well is that you have this terrible you can't leave them alone most of the time they don't live in the same family same most of the time they don't live in the same house as the rest right. of the family uh it's difficult to take care of them at home especially if you don't have the income to pay for help if you're if it's a working family you can't leave them alone at home you can't leave you move them with you it's very it's very much of a strain 
Uh, and then the alternative is to put them in a nursing home, and anyone who thinks that anyone enjoys that is just fooling themselves. So, and very few people are out of it to the point where they don't know where they are. Right. So it's a terrible dilemma, and my mom solved it by taking the burden onto herself. But on the other hand, she couldn't have done that if she didn't have the income to pay for help. Just right. Cannot. No single person can take care of a someone who's demented and wandering around all day long. It's so, not possible. So it's not sentimental, but it is you know, sort of responsible and loyal and with a certain amount of love that this is done and, yeah. and an incredible amount of tolerance and patience. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, that's, a lot of people do it. I mean, a lot of people figure out a way. They move back home to take care of their parents. They, then sometimes they just can't, you know, that's not because they don't love them as much. They just don't have the capacity to care for them properly. But also in the, in the, in the character that represents you in, in, in terms of the, the, what's his name? Uh, Daniel. Like you were able to, at the end, you know, process this stuff that you can hold both memories in your mind. You have that, how she ended and who she was. Yeah. is one continuum and, and, and to make sure you remember the other part. It may not be sentimental, but it's necessary. Yeah. I think it's, I hope it's the opposite of sentimental. I mean, to me, sentimentality is a way to avoid real emotion it's kind of looking at yourself having the emotion rather than looking at the situation that 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 is difficult and i think it's a a way to soft pedal just to make it more tolerable you, you have this sort of sweetsy saccharine yeah bullshit yeah uh it's all okay in the end it's her time you know all that crap nobody 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 thinks it's their time right. you know nobody wants to go <laughs> people hold on to very very little yeah because uh, it's worth being alive and they uh, not to quote myself but it, people really want to hang around and yeah. be functioning and have a life and it's kind of easy for people who are for those of us who are not in the hot seat to to kind of at some point let them go and this is life but it's, if you're if you're the one who's on their, your way out it's not something you want to do uh, and I think there's a certain amount of respect you can give to you can try to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's really going through something you're not and try to behave towards them as you would like someone to, to behave towards you, if you when you're in trouble. Is, is it sort of an aesthetic mission of yours to to uh, to to completely uh, make sure that, uh, you know, sentiment, sentimentality is put in its place? <laughs> Partly, yeah. I just hate it. I think it's such a lie. It's yeah. such a filthy lie, and I don't. And I think it makes people feel isolated. More sirens. More sirens. Um, there's something about. It's also incredibly self-centered, I guess. And if you explore it the way you just did with me, there is just that it's something we do to relieve ourselves from a certain amount of emotional responsibility. Yeah, and to it's it's kind of, it's a lie, you know. It's yeah. a, it's a lie that everything's okay, and I don't believe in rubbing people's noses and the fact that everything's not okay but there's something about the common experience of not of things going badly i've had a lot of people to my surprise come up to me you know back then when we first did the play and now like just say that that was really it was really rough but it's it's there's something there's something good about seeing your experience reflected back to you accurately you don't feel so alone a lot of times when people especially in this culture when people are in trouble everybody's been in trouble but you're kind of pushed off to the side you're relegated to a to a to a to a role in the margins it's not really woven into the way we live to you know take care of each other take care of each other and people do privately but it's not a communal experience and not maybe it shouldn't be but uh there's something that's very isolating about you have your friends and your family hopefully but there's something you're not it's almost as if you're not you're a downer and you're not in life with everybody else. And of course you are, 
but anyway, so I think there's something valuable in just being frank about it, and there's something valuable about just just in itself, just trying to be truthful. Well, I've, I've thought out loud about the fact that I, I think that you know most of us are built to shoulder or to to sort of at least be able to show up for other people in, in a fairly present and honest way without it collapsing us. But it seems that yeah. because of the pace of technology and, and, and emotional selfishness that people dismiss people. Yeah. But I, I do think that, you know, we, we're naturally able to to sort of show up for people that in, in the worst of situations. And it takes Definitely. less than you think. I Definitely. Think. And people really look out for each other in a yeah. really great way. Innately. And that's something you see in this city. Yeah. It's like at the beginning of Margaret, even with that horrible accident in New York, I mean, there's going to be a hundred people trying to help out w- without a second yeah. delay. No, I think that's true. And I think it's very, it's a really good thing. And that's partly what the play is about too. It's how, you know, but I don't think, I think it's, you know, both as a play and in life, you know, it's also works better dramatically, but the, you know, the, if you don't sugarcoat how rough the experience is, you're giving more value to the effort people make to, to deal with it. Right. See, it's a balance. Yeah. There's a balance and it, you know, it, adversity does often bring out the best in people if you have a friend in the hospital just walking through those grimy little halls and seeing all the open doors with all the relatives sitting in these chairs uh you know it's depressing to see people sick you know and and in so much trouble but it's very it's kind of uh i don't know what the right word is whether it's comforting or warming or inspiring or there's something beautiful about all those families sitting around visiting and just sitting there and trying to help out. I just feel like life at its best is rough enough. And so the fact that people, that it's so easy to make it worse is a real problem. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I, th- you know, the fact that people, you know, I don't know if it's anybody's fault, you know, there are not multiple generational homes here anymore. Right. Um, I was talking to somebody, you know, I had a friend who's, passed away now who's when she was older she said to me if i could i'd move to ireland because it's charming to be old in ireland and i met a i met a woman from africa last night who was talking to me we were talking about the play and she said we were having a similar discussion to the one we're having now and she said to me you know in africa people like to get old because they have all the authority everyone waits to get old so that they can be in charge and be the most respected person in the room and be the most uh just the person in the room who everyone looks to and it's completely different and yeah. so when people get ill there's this huge support system because you're the most you know just because you're 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 if you're the oldest person you're the person at the at the top of the and you're the, the most the food uh, chain. wisdom you're the most wisdom or even if you you just have some respect because you're older and it's 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 um it's sort of the opposite here. Yeah, it is kind of the opposite. You just you just pushed off to to these communities that are you know all all older people, which is a sort of a false community to live in. Everyone's the same age. Um, uh, you're put in assisted living facilities, nursing homes. Uh, you're just not involved in life in the same way and your past is is erased in a way. Yeah, and your past is erased, and it's really valuable for everyone. It's it's really interesting and it's valuable. It's it's enriching of, of you know to know what happened before you were here. It really informs your intelligence and your insight about what's happening now. People who have no sense of the past 
don't have a very accurate sense of the present. They think this is it. This is all that anyone ever, you know, when they have ideas, they think they're the first ones to have them. Yeah. When they're morals, they think they're the, they're, they've, they've hit the pinnacle of morality because they happen to be alive now. <laughs> and they don't realize that in 10, 20 years, everyone's going to be looking back at them appalled at their behavior. <laughs> uh, at morals in general. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> so, and uh, it's just, there's also like col- different colors from the past. I mean, it's a tremendous it's just a stupendous amount of stuff like the cultures and the personalities and the way people walked and talked and dressed and the music they listened to and the ways they thought and the ways they addressed problems. It's this incredible treasure trove of, of, yeah. uh, of anything you might want to look for. And also thought too, that, you know, in balancing that the honesty of the, the comedic element of somebody becoming repetitious or, yeah. or losing is a real thing. And I, and I, and I, I think that, that it's a, interesting line to sort of ride that there is humor in it and there has to be humor in it yeah or how would you even deal with it you have you got you know it's been said many times you gotta <laughs> laugh it's like there's and also think people are just funny you know there there are no joke zones in life plenty of them but they're in normal life they're not that common there's usually somewhere there's something funny happening somewhere Always, you, you know, almost always. <laughs> yeah, and, and you in laughter because I do stand up. I mean, it, it, there's different qualities of laughter. You know, there's there's laughter that should be crying, yeah, which is the fine, valid laugh. Yeah, there's laughter that because people are shocked and uncomfortable, and then there's the nice sort of turn of phrase laughter. Yeah. where they're impressed with the you know, but there it serves a lot of different purposes. Yeah. I prefer the laughter that could be crying myself. Yeah. I- <laughs> I like most of it. I don't. I, there's a nervous laughter which I don't like, yeah. but you get used to. Like when you do what I do, you get used to, after a while. Like younger people, younger writers or directors yeah. are like, "Why are they laughing at that line?" And I don't like it when people laugh when something bad happens. Like it's ner- they have a nervous oh, reaction. Yeah. But I know they're having doing it because they're having some kind of an emotional reaction, and you kind of get used to it. It's, right. it's a little bit of a. It's a weird thing. But like the most dreadful thing will happen in the play, and some one person will go like, <laughs> and you're like, "What the fuck are you laughing about?" <laughs> that's the that's the one that should be crying. That's the one that yeah. Like I, I I don't know how to process sadness, and you know, and I'm I'm uncomfortable, and this yeah. is challenging, and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and laugh for a second. It's involuntary. Yeah, I don't like aggressive laughing. I don't like when people laugh to prove they're not in it or to prove that you're no better to prove yeah i think it's i think it's mostly more to show or to show off to their friends yeah yeah that's another one i don't care for yeah Yeah. fake laughs yeah the three films you made not big laughs i think that i think i've heard some hearty laughs at those when there's when there's in a group you those those movies get laughs but you're not going for laughs sometimes i mean sure uh i try to i mean i think there's i don't i see i never think there's any difference really between comedy and and drama i think Uh it's all the same thing in a way uh it's you know almost more than two sides of the same coin I, i just like i think you know one thing that i think comedians tend to do when they do serious work is they drop their sense of humor completely and they become quite grim and dull uh you know when they do serious roles they're just kind of trying to prove to everyone that they're not only funny yeah and i find they're actually uncomfortable and they're totally insecure yeah but they think <laughs> yeah. they think their gift is not worth as much as it, they don't think they don't think so much of what they can really do and i don't think there's much and i get a lot of real life value from comedians through comedy and i don't think it's in any way a less valid way to react to to react to life or to 
to uh, channel your experience through your own perceptions and your own ability to, to, to put it back out in the world in some interesting way that no one else can. And I don't, I don't know why, I mean, I do know, I think I know why they do it, but I think they're mistaken because why they do what? Real well, why do they drop their roles? senses of humor? Oh, okay. Not why they do serious roles. Why they do serious roles so utterly humorlessly? Can you give me an example? <laughs> oh, I don't like to trash anybody <laughs> specific. I'm not a. Well, I mean, it's a rare occurrence that like uh, that that comedians act in serious roles. It doesn't happen all that much. No, and I, I've it noticed does, it does. Some some like yeah. to do it, and they kind of flip back and forth, and you're just dying for them to be serious. Well, okay, I'll give you an example. Because um, uh, like when Woody Allen did his first serious movie, it was called Interiors. Right. And he's, he's, his balance has now shifted, so he does com- his, com- his, fu- his sense of humor is laced through even his more serious films. But that first movie he did, which did have some good things in it, only Maureen Stapleton had any sense of humor in the entire film and the rest of them were just grim looking out the window bleak humorless and it was kind of dead because of that yeah um, and uh, but he I, had to find the balance he did have to find a balance but his first instinct when he did a f- serious movie part of his energy went into proving he was didn't just have to be funny and I think it's a sort of a there's no need for that like yeah it's not it's not something you need to turn away from to, to demonstrate most of the time, I think, like when people are doing some form of art or anything, really, to to make a statement, a defensive statement in some way, it never quite works because nobody else is having, no one else really is bothering to think. No one's thinking, oh, he's only funny. Yeah. You know? Yeah, only he is. And it's made him insecure somehow in that example. Yeah. Where he had to prove himself in some other way. Kind of, yeah. yeah. And he's not the only one. I just pick it because it was a well, long time ago. Well, what I've noticed about, about comedic people uh, in acting is some of them they're so deeply funny that they can't rid themselves of it yeah. and then you get what you're talking about you get uh, someone who is so dug in comedically that even when he's doing a serious role there's that essence yeah. that that enables them to either through your recognition of their past work or just who they are that they're they're still kind of funny somehow. yeah some, sometimes I mean it's uh, and there's some actors who can go back and forth and there's lots and lots of actors who have no sense of humor yeah. they're no good in comedies they, they do the same thing in a funny way it's the inverse they're, they're really good serious actors and then they do a comedy and they drop their whole sense of reality and they just kind of mug <laughs> and wink and overdo it and they're terrible because yeah. they don't think that's they, they somehow whatever insight they have any human behavior drops out because they're trying to be funny with a capital F yeah. just like comic actors who are too grim are trying to be serious with a capital S right well I guess the reason I bring it up in terms of, like I, obviously there's funny parts in the, the movies that are very serious that you've written but I mean knowing that you wrote analyze this mm. which which is like I love it yeah I, 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 it's a movie I watch repeatedly yeah I've, I've never seen it <laughs> But but you were right. I wrote straight the, up. Yes, the comedy. Yes, but again, you try to. You've never seen it. I've never seen it. it Why? Because it, it, it was rewritten. It's, it's, it's a stupid. Oh. It's a stupid. Uh, I don't know who I'm trying to. <laughs> I mean, it's a funny because I'm I'm very the the Jane Rosenthal who produced the film yeah. is a really good friend of mine. She's been very good to me. I, it was just rewritten. It was one of my first Hollywood experiences, and I wasn't surprised at all because I knew what I was getting into. But it's been rewritten. It's rewritten by fourteen people. Really? It's not really a word of mine left in it except oh, really? the title. The idea behind it is mine uh, originally. The um, the kind of the kind of humor that's in it is mine. 
so I take some credit for it, but it was just it was just rewritten, you know, totally out of my. Oh, so I, I can't even hang any of it on you. No, not really. It. No, but I've I've seen bits of it, and it is it does seem very funny to me. So, but yeah, I mean, I, but I even when you're writing straight up comedy, even if it's some look, even like the Marx Brothers who don't have a serious moment in the whole film, there is something. There is a genuine emotion in those films, and the emotion to me is how much they like screwing around and how much they like mayhem and how much they and they really like it and that's a real f- reaction to the world you know they yeah. don't like anything too stuffy they don't like and it's not they're not just out there to knock down you know social pretensions they yeah. really just like they just love to be insane and stupid and yeah. silly and they're really good at it and that's to me a genuine feeling that comes strictly through their being funny and it's just as valuable a reaction to the world as anybody else's so if you turned your sort of has your because you know they obviously reeled you in to do a couple big hollywood comedies they analyze this and that and and, and i guess bullwinkle yeah well that was an assignment i mean you got to make a living so right and do you, you, st- are you have you turned your back on that no i mean i still do rewrite work i had i haven't lately in the last couple of years but i up until two years ago i you know that's how i make a living for the most part is being a script doctor because uh, i don't i haven't made any i haven't made a lot of money off my own movies because the more money that gets put into a film project the less creative control you have right uh, now i probably would have more than than 10 years ago but um so I've tried to keep those things separate. So they give you they give you scripts to to give it a little yeah, or you get an assignment, doctor and, it up yeah, a little bit. Yeah, you always get fired. Yeah, so you can't get too precious about. You can't get too attached to the material. When they give it to you, are they sort of like, can you make this a little more real? Sometimes they'll say like, sometimes they'll say, can you make it more funny? Sometimes they'll say the characters are no good. Sometimes they'll say both. Uh, usually, when I do a rewrite, they are after better dialogue and better characterizations and then i and then i do my best and then they fire me and someone else rewrites it <laughs> intellectually though when when somebody says that about a character like when because uh, uh, where'd you come up at what theater did you come up in at the playwright where did you start writing uh i started writing in high school um theater yeah i had a really good theater program in uh, my high school and uh i started getting i was interested in writing plays in ninth grade and i really liked it and that's what i always wanted to do and then i went to a nyu uh the dramatic writing program at nyu but i only went there because i thought the homework would be easy because i was already writing a lot anyway and my parents wanted me to get a degree and i didn't care about that so much your parents were or well my father was a was a physician you know he was a internist and a geriatrician he was a doctor doctor my mom and stepfather are psychoanalysts wow yeah it's uh, and you have brothers and sisters. Well, yeah, I have a large extended family. You do, yeah. And being in the household with psychoanalysts, because uh, you know, yeah, I, I, my first wife was a, a kid of a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. and they they sort of get a bad rap sometimes as oddballs. Sure. But yeah, my parents are not oddballs particularly at all. I would say, and you know, they don't practice at home. What or did you feel? Like but what did you feel you got out of that that would have been different than other people? I I don't know. Self-investigation? I mean, no, I, I think, you know, there's a general interest in the house and personalities and different kinds of people. and uh, But I can't say that doesn't exist in other kinds of homes. Sure. Uh, but that certainly existed in my home. Um, Is that what... Because it, it, it seems that in order to be a, someone interested in creating theater, you'd have to have those interests. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but who knows? I mean, my, I'm, the, I'm the only person with a with a professional artistic bent in my whole family. I have three 
step-siblings, a brother, a half-brother, and adopted sisters. And my my adopted sister is a storyteller and, and writes, but the rest of them are doctors and lawyers like that. Well, maybe they're just afraid. <laughs> I don't think so. Did but everyone's in, you know, I have two brothers who play the piano, and everyone's got artistic interests. So just, when different when you're doing it for a living right so you start writing in high school and you go to nyu when when did when did you start uh producing uh after that i joined a theater company called naked angels which is which was a bunch of actors and writers coming out of nyu who were they who's in that that i know oh probably a lot of them Uh, fisher stevens um uh, rob morrow nancy travis matthew broderick robbie bates uh joe mantello uh these are a lot of these are theater people um yeah joe mantello yeah a lot of yeah and they all did okay for themselves the ones you're naming and that was a situation where you'd write and you'd workshop yeah that was like they had a little space on 17th street and uh they would do we do like uh one acts and sketches and evenings of short pieces and and you know some full productions and it was a great place to to be you know there were a lot of young theater companies in the late 80s and 90s um and you know like atlantic theater which is a really nice theater went on to become a legit off-broadway that's mammoth's place yes he he was involved in starting it he and he still has a relationship with them it's weird i talked to him and i uh yeah i I heard that interview was really good i thought it was challenging because like i find him a fascinating guy but i don't love his approach to actors no i don't either i think it's i think it's a i think it's a a misstep it's a very strange to me i mean again it's the way he works and you know there are many things that are great about him but i don't understand the idea that only the writer comes up with characters only the writer has a point of view about the people in the show and that everyone should just say the lines flat i don't i don't understand that at all and i don't think it works i don't either and he's another one i think i mean again i don't like to talk badly about people who are alive and working well, should say critically but critically speaking or you know um, well i mean who asked but i mean i think he had an incredible talent for dialogue probably better than anyone's and i think he took it a bit for granted like it didn't mean that much hmm. and he started to explore other areas um i think because he just thought anyone who can write anyone can write dialogue or if you can write dialogue it's just a gift and it's not worth that much and i don't agree i think he had a tremendous insight into the culture, into pe- uh, people's behavior, into, into all the things he's interested yeah. in, and it was through his incredible ear. And I think it's something that's worth cultivating and hanging on to. Although, not you know, it's not my business to tell anyone what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I and I, guarantee, I I would imagine he's not the kind of guy who's going to take any advice either. <laughs> no, of course not. He's got his own stuff he wants to do, and more power to him. Yeah. But your dialogue is, is, you also have the gift for it, but it's so dramatically different. Yeah, well, I'm not, you know, one. Uh, I'm not really trying to make a point. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I don't have a, I don't really have a, a, a an agenda to push. I don't, I don't mean that he does, but I mean, I trying to, I, I think what I try to do, what a lot of people try to do is explore certain areas, you know, look at different aspects of things that, that I'm interested in or that I might have an insight in that somebody else, because they're not me, might have, might not have. And I, and I, you know, I don't feel like it's my job to answer questions yeah. or to decide how people should do things or just, I don't know how the world should go or what people should do. And I, you know, I, I have my opinions and I'm sure they seep into my work, but I mostly think it's a question of, you know, part of what you do is look at patterns that you happen to see because you're the only one looking at things from your point of view. And if you can get those, if you can find some of the patterns and connections in, in life that, that are interesting to you and that you have some insight about and get them into a, into a dramatic form, that's, that's 
something worth doing it's fun to do too well that's i think that's what i was trying to come around to in terms of your evolution is that when somebody says that there's a problem with a character yeah i mean when you approach a character or where you're exploring a character because like margaret is a, is is a genius movie and, and as a character study of a teenage girl yeah that that like because it's so fresh in my mind and like i'd heard about it and i i didn't see it and i and i knew there was some sort of problem with the movie yeah. that you had a problem with it. Yeah. Well, there were a lot. There was a long editing struggle. I'm very happy with the way the movie turned you out. Are. If you watch the extended edition, I don't know which one you watch. There's two. There's the theatrical release, and then there's the longer extended edition, which is much better. I watched the one on iTunes. I don't know which one that is. I hope it was. They're both. It was long. They're both available. Well, but they're, they're both long. One's really long, but it moves much faster. It doesn't feel as long. <laughs> no, I hope. I, I don't know if I watched the right one. Well, I don't either, but. Uh, but but my my question is is that we have something like that where you have this teenage girl as this character you know yeah. who who has you know conflicts that are not un- necessarily unusual outside of you know cradling a, a, a dying woman in, right. in her in, in her arms at the beginning of the show and outside of that you know divorce you know daddy issues whatever yeah but in in order to support or to to build around this character and the behavior like. Like I just like what is the pro- what is the process of 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 taking that character, building it out, and then surrounding it? What you surrounded it w- with? How does that start to construct itself? Well, that that was a, an interesting, really fun to write, uh, and I I think I just started out with this girl who had uh, my first idea, which didn't really make it into the final film quite. It did, but it, but in a very adjusted form, was this girl who you know she causes and is right there for this terrible accident which in which a woman is killed and a street a bus accident and she uh the first idea i had was that this this bad terrible thing happens that she felt it's very traumatizing that she's also partly responsible for and she lies to protect herself and also the bus driver just on the spur of the moment and then she my first idea was that she would then go to all these adults and ask them what to do and none of them would have an answer for her um and that idea when i tried to write it turned collapsed because i you know if you really think you know i try really hard to think what would really happen if this was real and i thought well of course adults would have advice for her like they might not have the right advice which is where i where when it, it ended up she 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 they didn't nobody had a solution that really was work was was complete because there is no solution that's that's complete and that's what she goes through and then that slowly built into this idea of um i don't know how but it it built into this idea of living in a city where everyone is somewhat connected and everyone is not and just the the simple idea of like we're sitting here and there's you know probably five ten thousand people walking around very near us and they're all having a very different experience from the one we're having and some of them are going through really serious things and some of them are playing frisbee and it's it's i, I just got very interested especially in a city like this where everyone's in such close proximity and that's how you other. shot it that, that there are these scenes where yeah you, you see like she's a person among people whether it's in an audience or walking down the street or or any yeah. that, that there was a lot of focus put directorially on on like you know there are all these people on everybody else yeah and part and then but i could one reason this film was so much fun to write and to shoot uh, wish it had been as much fun to edit but that got into political struggles with the studio and the producer but um was that you know 
it's a little hard to describe. You, you, you have, you know, Werner Herzog says his ideas are like burglars who come into his house. He doesn't really feel responsible for them. They just occur to him and he doesn't know where they come from. And um, I feel that way when things are going well, you kind of have, you have, you have, quote unquote, have an idea. And then, but it's like this idea interests you and it's does it's almost the way a movie another movie would interest you but it, it doesn't exist and you have this impulse you want to put it on paper you want to put it out there and make it you want to create it you want to have it you want to give it some shape and then if you have an idea that's really exciting and interesting to you to me i'll just talk about myself uh then you try to follow the trail of what your interest is without even necessarily knowing what it is and you have other ideas that strike you as as right, and then you have ideas that strike you as wrong, and you don't always know why. But if you kind of trust that you're, there's something inside you that's trying to get out, and you try to listen to those signals, you try not to try to listen to when you're bored and when you don't think it's any good, and you try to listen to when you're interested and intrigued, and when it, and then you find all later on you find all these themes cropping up, or not, and or all these storylines or all these ideas that are that are connected to each other. So one of the things in that film is the whole idea when you're a teenager, your life is very serious and dramatic, and part of it is very sincere and deeply felt, and part of it is this big show you're putting on, because you sort of feel like you're in the middle of a, of a TV movie. At the same time, teenagers are very passionate, very, 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 they're not, they're not inured to life, they're just discovering it, and... Um, Elaine May actually said to me, you know, this girl is trying to write this terrible injustice, you know, this injustice that she's caused and that nobody else is that, you know, she goes to the police, she goes to these lawyers and she can't get anyone to acknowledge that that what she did and what this bus driver did is something that should be recognized as as a terrible thing and, and dealt with in some form of justice and she struggles very hard to 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 find some kind of anyway. So then the Elaine May said to me, she said only a teenage girl could think she could affect the world that much didn't you have a teenager at the time you were writing it? no i have one now oh um not quite as uh <laughs> not quite as vigorously anti-parent as the character in the in the film but um it's you know that's again it's one of the areas the film looks at is the way kids can be so you know the first your first move into independence is to decide your parents are hypocrites and phonies and shallow and eventually you kind of circle back and realize they're just they're just grown up kids and they're just trying to figure things out the way, the way you are and, yeah. the, and that you're no better than they are really. Yeah. Um, unless there's something unusually wrong with them. When you're trying to solve problems of character, do you realize these nuances specifically? Yeah. I mean, part of it is instinctive and part right. of it is following this hidden trail. And right. Part of it is once you, once the trail is revealed to you, you then follow it up more consciously. Um, but a lot of that, there's a sort of a half conscious state you get into when you're writing and, and the really smart, insightful part of everyone is not necessarily the part that's on the surface. You know, people, you know, there, there's something that connects you to other people or to your own ideas. That's a, that's a bit more unconscious. And I think, you know, I kind of like to compare it to an athlete, like when they're really in the zone, they're not thinking about every, you know, a basketball right. player who's playing really brilliantly is not thinking about every shot he's not thinking about where the ball's going he's just in some kind of groove that nobody understands and when you're writing well and acting well and 
playing music well, I think you get into a similar groove, and sure. no one really knows what that is. It's well, not it's not magic. It's a very powerful and consistent side of being a human being, but nobody quite knows what it is. But it's also like within the craft that you've chosen that you know yeah. you keep trying these things out and you put things on stage and you process it. Sure, and, and when you don't, when it's not happening, you're it's really awkward, and you're trying to like. You, you know, you have a great scene and scene A is great. Scene C is great. Scene B sucks. And you're just like, how, the fuck, how do I get from A to C without fucking everything up? And then it becomes like math, emotional math. A little bit. and then, But part of it is thinking, well, what really would happen if scene A was real, really true? What would happen after that? And yeah. would they, in fact, go into the, would they go get a cup of coffee? No, they're fighting too much. If I write this big fight scene, in order for them to then have a cup of coffee, as I've written in scene B, something has to change. So I may have skipped the scene. Yeah. There may be a scene where they reconcile or they're for, they have to, they have an appointment. Something concrete has to happen to get you from one point to the next if it doesn't make logical sense the first time you write it. Yeah. Um, and... So it must be easier to think about that when somebody sends you an already thing that you're not, you didn't write the original. And and you're looking at these characters, and, and you yeah. can just say things like, "Well, this like as as an observer." Yeah, it's a little easier to do yeah. it with someone else's, and sometimes I think it'd be better to kind of uh, adopt that kind of uh, journeyman attitude towards my own work. It might come a little more easily, like if you're able just to just detach less, from the yeah, first draft, a little and less it. precious about it, and not trying to dig so deep all the time, because it doesn't always work. Sometimes you're more. <laughs> more shallow characteristics carry you through better <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about uh, a little bit about directing about manchester uh by the sea you've done these three movies and they're very specific you know there's a you know i i can't remember where you can count on me takes place where is uh, it? it's a small town in upstate new york and then in in margaret that's here yeah in the city and then like manchester by the sea was and i spent a lot of time in new england you know i started comedy there went to college there it's a very specific type yeah. of life and person yeah it sure is so why there i mean when does it you know what is the seed of that well that was a little arbitrary that was more like an assignment which you're given a, something and then you just dive in and that you dive into that point um that idea the idea of the film was matt damon's and john krasinski's and they it came to me with this idea they wanted me to write a script from and it was uh, their first idea was this story takes place in Manchester by the sea where I'd never been. Uh, it's a small town north of Boston, just next to Gloucester. Um, uh, Gloucester. Gloucester, and uh, I said sure. They said put it anywhere you want. I said that sounds good to me. So it was it was a sort of a backwards. Okay, so, right. Well, but then it became mine very quickly. But it was a kind of a backwards process. It started with a place and then i learned more about that place i'd been in gloucester a few times and i have some relatives in massachusetts so it wasn't totally alien to me but there was a certain amount of research so what was the story they said to you that this guy causes the death of his kids mm -hmm. in a horrible accident run with it uh yeah they said well their idea was it's kind of he's kind of the town character and he accidentally his daughter he, he's taking care of his daughter and she chokes to death while he's out putting out the trash she's in a high chair just pretty grim and then he leaves town, and then when his brother dies, he comes back to take care of his teenage, his his young nephew, and they form a relationship, and it's kind of his redemption is to come back and take care of his nephew. So that was the bare bones. Now, I threw out quite a lot of that, and I actually made the accident that happened worse than what they had imagined, and I tried for a while to write him as a town character, and it didn't work at all. So I 
so I had to switch out his personality completely before I could well, go then forward. Then he becomes this town myth. Then he's a town notorious in the right. town for having having done this horrible thing. Been somewhat responsible yeah. for this another film where there's a accident that the main character is responsible for, but this is worse. Then I, it's not totally dissimilar. There's a certain some. I thought it was a really good idea right away, and then there's a certain amount of the material that I that they had suggested that I didn't didn't do anything for me. So I. But I had this assignment, I had to write it, and I, I needed the job at the time, and I liked the idea, and I love Matt, and I, I like John, who I don't know as well, and I really wanted to do this, so I kept fishing around till I found other material that, that connected to their idea, which I liked as much as if it had been my idea. Fishing in your head? Yeah, yeah. I was like, well, I don't like the main characters I've written. He's very flat. I don't, he doesn't do anything for me. I don't really see who he is. I don't... And... Uh, and um, but I had a, written a brother character for him who I really did like, who seemed like a real guy in my head. And to me, he was a real person. So I got rid of the main guy and I switched the brother to being the main character just in my head. And then I was like, okay, then I felt like I had something more robust to work with. And then I gave him a, a different, yet a different brother. And then I had a little family that I believed in and I was able to proceed. Um, it's kind of like you're following clues that are coming up from your own mind. And, that's something I've over the years that's if I have any kind of technique that's my that's what I try to do is follow my interest and if 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 I like the character of Lee instead of the character of John who it started out as then I know that's 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 gonna yield something valuable I just I find it so interesting that like you know in specific I, I guess my it's not really a question but I, I just I, I don't know how it happens it, maybe it's just an acute empathy or perce- perception of, of human nature but you know the the codependent relationship of the brother with the heart condition with that woman mm-hmm. and and her character mm-hmm. you know is a, is a very specific and i think a very disturbing and real thing that you know does and, and that just happens for you in your mind or do you like you because like it seems psychologically sound yeah and you know and also also casey's character you know w- w- with alcohol you know that there there's something about that yeah well i hope it is i mean i, I it's it's certainly supposed to be yeah I, I think, it is yeah i mean but that's what's interesting i mean i've had people say lots of nice things to me and one thing nice thing people say is i like how your characters are not good or bad and my feeling is first thank you and then second like who do you know who is all good or all bad like i don't i don't know anyone who's like yeah. that. there's some really rotten people in the yeah. world but even they have friends and relatives who they think, who think they have shitty friends or shitty relatives or they're nice to their dog you know i mean that it doesn't exist someone who right. is like in the movies there's no person sitting back cal- cackling it well, yeah it's sentimental to think a villain is all is knows he's a villain he doesn't yeah you know the most villainous people in the world think they're right yeah and think they're yeah. Or they're aware that they're that they don't care about anybody else, and they think that's fine. Yeah, we have um, a president. That's yeah, <laughs> but he's he, he's sure he's right about everything. Yeah. Everyone is. That's what's so maddening. Also, not just this is not just to be cycle. You know, it's more dramatic to have two people who think they're right arguing with each other. When I see a movie and the villain is cackling with glee, you know, laughing because he's so evil, I'm like, this doesn't do anything for me. It's yeah. not. It's weak. Right. He's not real. It's much more frustrating to deal with somebody else's alternate reality than it is to deal with someone who agrees with you that, that they're no good. Yeah. Uh, and so it makes for better drama, I think. And when you're directing, what, what do you, how do you, you know, as a writer, you, you know, what is, what's your approach to directing? Is it, it, it as a, to, 
because you know you're you're pretty you know it's straight ahead and it's you know beautiful and you do have a, an appreciation obviously of, of the environment but is it there to service the the writing and the characters in a, in a basic way or, or do you approach direction with a, a, some sort of craft in your head um you know my whole goal is to make it as vivid and lifelike as possible um whatever the story may be that's that's what i enjoy doing so i'm you know to me the environment is really it's such a presence everywhere you go like the room we're in now or just sure. my drive up here or just when we, when we go out into this noisy horror outside i don't know what the hell's it, going on it, out there it's just well it's just daily life now but like or but if you get in a car and drive an hour you suddenly in the some you're out of new york there's a sky opens up you could be in one of these depressed little towns in new york, up in new york state you could be in the hamptons where it's very zhuzhi yeah uh and it's just suddenly different and the environment really seeps into everything and I, i'm really you know I, for some whatever reason i'm always really interested in the physical environment uh, that that the characters are in so that's one way to kind of bring the material to life also you know life is very specific there's no real such thing as a generality in the world everything yeah. is very concrete and specific so sometimes so my way into these stories is to be as specific as possible um means doing a certain amount of research uh and thinking as accurately and vividly as you can about the people and what's happening in the room between them um and some of it you comes to you as if by magic even though it isn't and some of it you have to work on and figure out and kind of plod through till you come up with something that you like and what's your approach to you know actors pretty much the same you know i have an idea of the story that i think works because i wouldn't have considered the script finished until i do and then when we're working on the scenes you kind of tell them your version and hope they can use that as a jumping off point. And most of the time they can. And then there are things that I know are happening in the scene that if they don't pick up on, I will point out to them. And then there's, there are always things that they know that I never thought of. And that's the fun of working with actors is that they bring so much to it, so much more to it than I could. So it's fully collaborative in your mind. Very much so. Yeah, they're not, I mean, they're, without them, there's nothing. Um, And uh, it's one thing to imagine all these things happening and all these people and it's another thing to actually embody them and become them and, you know, what they have to do is is tremendously difficult and, and interesting and I just try to, you know, like, for instance, if there's a couple and I've written them as insulting each other and they're meant to get along well, uh, sometimes people who are not naturally sarcastic and mean like I am <laughs> will make a little smile after they insult their their imaginary spouse or yeah. brother or sister or parent right. in a scene. And I will say, listen, I think you're close enough that you don't have to make you don't have to make it clear that it's a joke. You've known you've known each other for ten years, and when you kid around, there's no need to soften it by by smiling. And to me, that suggests a greater intimacy, and the, and they'll that's something that anyone can understand, and they'll stop smiling, and I, and the, and something will spark between them that wasn't there before. So that's the kind of thing I might say, and then all, other time if it's going well, I don't say anything. And Casey wasn't the original guy. No, Matt Damon was going to pl- first. Yeah, Matt was going to play the the lead, and yeah. then his schedule got too tight, and uh, he you know we could have either delayed for two years or gone ahead. With Casey and Matt and I both agreed Casey was should be it was was a great idea if Matt couldn't do it so we offered it to Casey and luckily he was able to do it. It's kind of hard to imagine it any other way. And they're both great actors. Yeah, that's the funny thing that happens. You know, you write it and you can 
put various people in it in your head and then when someone really comes and embodies it you, it's hard to imagine anybody else doing it when you're shooting that those scenes like or, or i'm sure the one scene that you probably talked a, a lot about was that scene with michelle williams and mm-hmm. when they when they first see each other after yeah. all those years yeah i mean when you're on set and you see that thing unfold it had to it's great you know more than anything you could have ever imagined yeah it is and they're just you know they're just both so good and they i think about it so much it's a great scene and you know i i like the writing in the scene but the performances are what makes it and it's just really they're so alive and the situation is so painful and they're so they're trying so hard to again you know i think the scene would have been less good if one of them you know one thing people like to write a lot is fights arguments you watch tv and they're and they're always are or any movie you know they always start out they're snapping each other they're always arguing and i'm like and it's just easy to write a, a fight scene and i and and i think that it's people don't fight that much or that openly in real life they do of course but they do a lot of other things too and these two characters are really trying to be nice to each other but they're at terrible odds and they can't connect she's desperate to connect and he's desperate not to so they can't but at this but the, another thing that's happening is that they're both very conscious of not trying to hurt each other and i think that's kind of what makes the scene so so strong because they're both they're both the both the way they both perform it is so there's the 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 conflict between what they want to do and how they're trying not to wound each other and doing it is impossible to sustain. And he eventually has to walk away. I, I think it's, I think it's great. I love how they do it. Yeah. It's, and it's very exciting on the set to watch that happening. How many times did you have to do it? We did a few takes. We had two cameras. Yeah. Um, we did, we, sh- we scheduled it for half a day cause we knew it was a big scene. That's a long time for a movie like yeah. that. Um, and we had, and we did, I think we probably did about five takes, mm. uh, so you'd have one, you'd have Kate over Michelle's shoulders shooting Casey, and then also a two shot at the same time, and then 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 the reverse. Hmm. I see. I now like I feel bad for what I said about comedy earlier because like I I realize that when you say that there's not that much difference or any difference between drama and comedy is that in a piece of work that if there are laughs in something like you do they're they're earned and they're completely within context where you write something like analyze this or whatever you know you're writing jokes but when i think about the relationship between uh, casey's character and you know his his brother's son yeah there's a lot of comedy there yeah there is and it's but it comes yeah i i hope it there is yeah no definitely but like you look at somebody like scorsese who writes you know who, who who makes these films about these very violent extreme but he loves extremity and behavior and his his movies are incredibly funny there's people are so far out even if they're even if they're these ruthless murderers right. it's really funny somehow because he's so enamored of extreme behavior or you look at Stanley Kubrick whose movies are not thought of as being particularly funny except for like Dr. Strangelove which is a flat out comedy he's got this incredible sense of humor I don't know what it is it's a sense of irony or just this strange like I don't know but so a lot of people do this you know Pedro Almodovar the great Spanish director movies are incredibly funny and incredibly moving and there's just it doesn't it's it's not that thing where it's funny and then there's a serious scene and then it goes back to being funny yeah it's all woven in together it's not shtick no and which is not, what was which is sort of makes sense that you know that that analyze this got so far away from you because there are scenes in there that are so sticky that i have to respect them as shtick yeah like I, that, there's like, nothing wrong great. with shtick i love it it's 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 great i mean my but like 
Look at a show like The Honeymooners, which is the single greatest television show ever, in my opinion. And it's really funny, but there's a real, their relationships in it are very real. And it's not. Character. The characters are great yeah. and they're really believable, even though it is essentially a sitcom. And uh, I think it all, it all goes together very well. Uh, so, what was your experience with the, you know, in terms of where you're at now and what you can do with, with the accolades you have? Well, an Academy Award's not nothing. No. But uh, but in terms of, like, I'm curious about the experience. What held up Margaret so long? It's a very long story. It's not very interesting. But it was essentially, um, it was a very difficult movie to edit. It would have been anyway. It was. It's a very different kind of movie. It's a very. It has a really unusual structure, and the length is. The, it really needed to be longer than it was contracted for, and that was the fulcrum of where the conflicts were. And um, f- they basically didn't believe I was going to get it to them at the right length, or that it would be good at the right length. I. They wanted me to get it in on schedule at the right length, which was two and a half hours and have me be happy with it. And I tried really hard to do all three things and I couldn't. And, uh, I was able to keep it on schedule. There was a series of contracted extensions, but that sounds stupid because it took five years to do, but there was all mutually agreed upon delays. Um, and it just got, it just built up from there. We didn't trust each other. We didn't like each other. They didn't, give me the leeway I needed to complete the film because they didn't trust me and I couldn't understand that they that that wasn't something they wanted to do because my feeling was if they just leave me alone I would get it done and it would be really good the one thing they didn't want to do was leave me alone they tried everything but that and even after we'd been fighting for two years they'd say what can we do I'd say leave me alone and they'd say why would it be different now I said because you've never tried it yeah and uh so it just uh, nobody would back down. It was impossible as it turned out to give the film to them at the at the length they wanted and have it be any good. I didn't know that when I started. They thought I was conspiring the whole time to give it to them at a longer length. There wasn't, and it just went. It just built on from there. And many, many there are many chapters to the to all the to the to right. that story. I would take all. But day. you're happy with the director's cut. I'm very happy with the extended cut. version. Yeah. It's still not exactly what I would have wanted. Um, there's some there's some music there that I don't like. There's some edits there that I don't like. Um, it's much, much better than the other version. It's much closer to what I wanted. It's about, I'd say about 80% of what it should be. And usually I like to get up to 90, 90, 95%. So Manchester by the sea is a 95%. 90, 90. I think it's, I think it's about 10 minutes that could come out of it. And there's a couple of things in it that I don't love, but mostly I think it's really pretty much. What Why I, are those what things I, in it? Because you lose, it's hard to, you know, you have, you have to, you have to finish it. You know, you can't keep tinkering with it. First of all, you can't, if you keep, there's a point at which you get to where your, your fixes start to make it worse and you don't understand why, but once that happens, it's really time to lock, to, really? to lock it down. Yeah. Um, it was further along in earlier cuts than I realized. I spent about six months making really minute changes that were, didn't make it better and then after that six months, you have to release it. There's a release date. You can't keep screwing around with it forever. And uh, you're not confident that your fixes are going to make it any better. So that 10% is inexplicable to you in the a sense little, that yeah. you, you, you don't know what the solution is. But no. uh, Well, that's an acceptance. Yeah. 
Yeah. That it's out of your hands. <laughs> it's out of your hands to a certain degree. When it was in your hands. Yeah, it's the same with writing a script. Like you 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 can see where it needs work, you keep working on it, and then at some point the balance tips and you see that you're making it worse. So you have to stop, even though some of it's still not satisfactory. So there's no get there's no being satisfied. Uh, no, I'm very sad. I'm I think I'm more satisfied with most of my work than most of my friends who do the same thing. I'm you know, I'm really happy with you can count on me, I'm really happy with Manchester. A little I have a couple of little quibbles with it. You can count on me. I have two quibbles with it ex- exactly. There's just two scenes that I'm not crazy about. Yeah. I, I cut one scene that I should have kept in, and I changed one shot that I should have left the way it was. But, but uh, you don't wake up at night thinking. No, but I, it's, I, I, I'm always annoyed when I watch it. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes on. Yeah, but I'm very happy with my plays. I don't think they're perfect, but I think they're mostly really good, and, and I, I like the way they've been performed. So I'm pretty satisfied. I I'd love to see the, a production of a Lobby Hero, but I haven't. Done yeah, that. we had a real. It was a really good one last year. That's yeah, I, I don't think it's possibly completely satisfied, especially over time when you get a little better. Hopefully, at your job or you're a different person. You're and you, it's just you know. Working on this stuff is like a question of stepping in and stepping back. And eventually, you know, you, you're up close working on it. And then you step back to look at the whole thing and you see see it a little differently. But it's, but at some point, as, as you get older, you accept what you've done and you can see that that's where you were in your life. And that those issues, has it ever happened where you've had issues with something and you realize, well, no, it, it actually is okay. Yeah, many times. Yeah. yeah, you kind of, these details start to loom very large in your mind and then you realize, all the time. I mean, that's partly why it's difficult to edit because your mood changes. So you look at one scene and you're like, this is a disaster. Or you're worried someone else is going to think it's a disaster. And then you look at it a week later and you're like, oh, it's fine. But, or, but as a playwright, I mean, if you wanted to, you could go in and in this new production of yeah. the Waverly Gallery, you could change it. Yeah, you can. I mean, I there are three or four things I would cut from this script, but I'm not that confident I'm right. And part of that's because I, you're you're different when you're really connected to it to the p- point where you're able to work on it. And I have a, and it may be superstition and it may be wrong. Yeah. But I, I I have, you know, for most of my working life, tried to respect what I was doing at the time and and understand that I couldn't do it now, just because I was at a different place psychologically. I was in I was really in the groove of whatever that project was and i maybe don't know as much now about it as i did then the feelings are different the feelings are different and my, the insight is different and I've, i have a different view of it because now it, it it's different it's not something i'm working on by myself other people have been involved other people have seen sure. it. it it has it's it's sort of it's become a different animal and what was your involvement with uh with gangs in new york that was a really good time for me i i uh they had been through three writers the last guy who'd worked on it his name is Hussein Amini who's a really good writer and he was only able to come in and do some patchwork on it and then he had to go off and they asked me to come they asked me to come at the very last minute and rewrite some of the characters and dialogue and uh I just got married they flew my wife and I to Rome my wife and me to Rome and uh we lived in Rome for three months and I went to the studio in Chinichita every day and worked with Scorsese and Daniel Day-Lewis and Leonardo DiCaprio and it was really fun and yeah. I love I love period stuff I love uh, I'm really interested in the Civil War I lo- the whole set was just incredible to be on as blocks and blocks and blocks of this reconstruction of uh, 19th century New York City slums it was just incredible and we just had a really good time everybody else was freaking out about the movie and I was having a blast yeah it's like uh, exciting yeah it was really exciting yeah I now in in those moments because like, I'm I'm shooting 
I have a very small part in the Joker movie. So oh, yeah. So I'm going over this first time I've met De Niro. Yeah. Of, of course. And, yeah, like, and, I'm, and I'm doing a scene with him for like 30, 40 seconds. It's cool. <laughs> but it's like it's something else. Yeah, yeah. But like like even in watching them work, I mean, did, was something planted in your brain about that process and about working with actors and about directing? Or were you just so thrilled to be there that you, you didn't really, weren't looking at it that way? No, a little of both. I mean, you can't help but absorb what's happening around you. You know, this was a big, big movie and to watch him, Marty, like I call him Marty. <laughs> Everyone calls him Marty. I'm not showing off. We, we, I haven't seen him for a while, but we got to be pretty friendly. That's yeah, good. he's been really, really good to me. Um, and I just, I love him. But uh, he, to watch him manipulate all the elements of this enormous production and to keep his eye on it and to not just the production, but the people and the, you know, the whole thing and to design these shots. I didn't get to see him working with the actors too much because he would basically go off and talk to them quietly. So I didn't ever knew what he was saying to them, but, um, kind of watch him riding the performances from the monitor or in the editing room later. And, um, it was fascinating. And, uh, just watching the different way the actors, just approach the parts yeah. and uh the process of re- redoing the rewrites was interesting um you I'd, wow, so well i'd mostly done rewrites not i'd never done rewrites on on the set while you know i was i was rewriting about two weeks ahead of the schedule which was pretty intense and he just had this really good system we'd all i'd meet with him and the actor involved and we'd all talk about the scene and what was wrong with it and what the, what they wanted was and daniel day in character all the time he did that voice all the time yeah but and uh but he seemed to me to be very nice and the character isn't very nice right and uh on the weekends he dropped the accent and he told me later that he he had two. He had. I don't know if his first, second son had been born yet, but he had a kid at home, and he yeah. didn't want to come home and be this sinister Bill the Butcher, which he would have done before he had children. So right. he said it was the first role he ever did. Just where put he, his wife through that. Yeah, I just put it, exactly. Just put his wife through it. <laughs> so anyway, so we'd sit there and we'd talk about the scene, and then I'd go off. I'd show it to Marty. When Marty and I were happy, we'd show it to the actor, and then everyone. It was just sort of a very good system of uh, uh, circulating everyone's notes till everyone was happy. So where's your uh, where, where, what areas of your brain are are, are are sparking now in terms of what you're writing now? Where, where, where are you headed? Uh, well, I have a screenplay I'm interested in that I'm trying to get off the ground, and I have a play, an original, one? An original screenplay. I have a play that I would really like to write. I have no idea if I can or not, um, and because uh, it, it's very, it, it would be quite a challenge to try to put it together. It's a um, if it, I ever write it, it's a historical. What period? Piece, uh, fourth century i don't know what that is fourth it's the late roman empire uh-huh. uh it's a uh fourth century uh ad and i i don't have any idea how to put it on a stage and i probably won't be able to do it but it's 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 a period i've gotten really interested in lately why i don't know i was always interested in history i was always interested in roman history among many other periods i like medieval history i like 19th century history like you're gonna write in that dialogue you can't write dialogue from in, you can't write. I, I can't write fourth century Latin or Greek, so no. <laughs> but uh, so that's one of the problems: is how do they talk? Yeah. Um, one of the many many problems. I probably I don't think I can do it, but I'm I'm learning a lot about the. What period. kind of human story can you place then that you could, can't place now? The true. Oh well, it's a totally different world. It's like saying what kind of human story can you place in the deep south that you can't place in in the Soviet Russia? I mean, that's that you can. The, like they place Shakespeare in all kinds of different environments. Sure, maybe it maybe it has to be done in a modern way. I really have no idea. Uh-huh. It's very. I mean, 
I don't even want to say it's early in the process because I don't know if there's going to be a process. And where's, what, what world is the screenplay in? Well, I, you know, the truth is I'm a little uncomfortable talking about stuff I haven't written because oh, yeah. I don't want to talk it away. Yeah, yeah, right. That happens, right? <laughs> it does happen. You keep talking about it. It's like yeah, it's there's done nothing, in your head. nothing left to do. <laughs> yeah. So what, so what do you do during the day? Just write? I try to write. I do crossword puzzles. I read. Yeah. I, uh, do you freak s- out? Sometimes. Yeah. Not you know in an internal way. How are you handling the world? It's horrible. I don't know. I don't know what to do about it. Uh it's quite I think about it a lot. Probably not as active about it as some people. I don't know what to do about it. It's pretty bad. It's a little hard to know how bad it is. It's one scary thing about it because you know I have a friend who we had an argument, pretty casual argument because I said I'm not so sure. He said this is the worst administration, this is the worst presidential crisis we've ever had and i said i'm not sure that's true it's happening to us right now i don't know how bad it's going to get it's very bad now but i don't know if this is going to you know if you think about if you had been you know if we had been alive and grown up in 1969 70 the world looked pretty grim then we had this terrible war the whole country was a series of assassinations uh terrible problems uh riots every summer um, bombs going off everywhere. It must have looked like a complete collapse to people at the time. And he said that he didn't agree. He didn't think Nixon was as bad as Trump. And I don't know if he's right or not. We're not in a war. We're yeah. not in a major war. There's all these small. There's all these smaller, horrible conflicts all over the globe. We're not in a big major war. Uh, we're not in the middle of an economic crisis. We're not having riots and race riots and um, all kinds of other riots. We don't have. We don't have the police gunning down union workers who are, you know, there's a lot that's not happening that has happened. It doesn't mean that it's not going to get very bad, but I don't know. And the other thing is I was going to say, like, you also look at, you know, the most extreme example you can think of, the rise of the Nazis and their consolidation of power. You know, you say, why didn't the Jews leave as soon as Hitler came to power? Well, they didn't know how bad it was going to get. It happens in increments. So you don't really know what we're up against yet. And some people... So you're saying it's going to be hard to know when to leave? It's hard to know what to do or how... I mean, I think the thing to do is to agitate and try to vote vote out the rabid conservative cynics that are in power now. And you've got to try to find some way to find some kind of civilized accommodation with all the people who violently disagree with each other i don't know how to do any of that but and it's got to be done but i in terms of just prognosticating about how bad things are going to get or how bad this is in the big picture i don't really know it's quite bad but as an artist like right there what you said like you know like it would seem that on on some level it doesn't necessarily seem that this is your starting point for for creativity but you know bridging the gap between you know these ideological tribes yeah seems to be rich territory and and obviously a lot of people talk about it yeah and and i guess some people would say well i'm going to to con- to confront that or yeah. or, or explore it uh, through characters and that's not the way your brain works you know you can only write about what you can write about you yeah. might want to write about lots of things but i'm not you know there's some things you're better at and some things you do more naturally and yeah. i don't know I, you like to think that any kind of connection that people make through fiction with other people is valuable uh even if it's just to give people i mean and i don't i think there's a value in entertainment you know people some people think it's a narcotic and i suppose it is but i think there's some you know people need to have something to watch on tv when they come home or to read about or to go to the movies or to go to a play too much you know too much i I know but it's not something you'd want to do without Mm -hmm. um and i 
you want people to think and have a real experience at least i do when they go to see my work uh and i don't know how i do think there's some value in trying to understand somebody whose point of view is totally different from yours i don't know that you get that a lot in entertainment i think you get a lot of you know where's where's the right wing point of view in the entertainment world it simply doesn't exist and i i'm not Some i'm fallen stars on twitter who people assume have gone bad yeah yeah exactly i mean i often wonder i've wondered for many years way before trump what i, I had this idea of putting on a really right wing oriented play in new york city and seeing how tolerant all my tolerant friends were to another ideology like a, a totally jingoistic play i don't know and, just something that presented a conservative point of view as reasonably as possible yeah and i know they'd go insane yeah uh so i think there's a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of stretching that needs to be done on both sides i do think you're right i think this is a tribalistic a- aspect i mean frankly none of us want trump to do well at anything we just want him gone because he's so awful so we're I I would bet that my most of my friends, us. including my us, you know, yeah. I assume you have the same. Yeah. Since you're in show business, I assume you have a similar political ideology. But like the fact is, I get a little depressed when I read how good the economy is because I don't think about all the benefits it's, it's, that are accruing for people. Just, I think well, it's going to make him more popular. Yeah. He's, the bad one is winning. Yeah. And that's a really unhealthy attitude. I'm um, people, you know, and people he would the, agree with you. People, <laughs> it is it is unhealthy. People on the left are every bit as knee jerk and. And 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 uh, regimented in their thinking, and uh, as people on the right, we like to. They're think not our, as disciplined, we, and they're not as focused, and they correct. don't have a long-term view that, that they engage. That's correct, and I we try, and we hope that our values are are better. Mm-hmm. But so do people on the right. I don't. I'm not a relativist. I don't think it's all the same thing. But um, you know, people on the right can't understand why, how we can feel that we're moral when we're against every single thing that that he does but to us i think it's not a he's not something that should be tolerated he's a, he's a, he's a he's he's a very very bad guy he's a pathological liar i mean i don't have to go into all right for this audience especially i don't have to go into the whole story but so how tolerant are you how tolerant should you be of mccarthyism not at all is the argument but then you're accused of picking on everything poor old joe mccarthy says but he was a self-serving climbing liar he didn't even believe anything he was saying yeah so but so none of that conversation that you just uh, we just had you know including uh putting on this this uh this play this uh that that's empathetic and sensitive to a conservative uh, viewpoint yeah uh you know engages you enough to 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 rise to the occasion i think about it all the time you know as i say you can only write what you can write about yeah. i'm not i i don't i don't I have not seen very many plays, movies, or read very many books that have a specific political message that they're trying to convey that are any good. Right. To me, I think that's journalism, essays, speeches, conversation, people. I'm not here to make a point because if I'm making a point through the medium of a drama or a comedy, unless I'm very clever, I have a really good point to make, I'm essentially using the people in the story as puppets to to disguise the fact that i'm putting forth some kind of particular ideology right i understand that and if i have something to say uh, that's 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 a, a a declarative sentence i'm better off just saying it instead of spending two hours have pretending some other people are saying making it. up a, a shallow character right. <laughs> exactly <laughs> 
Well, it was great talking to you, man. Oh, you too. Thanks a lot. Yeah, really thanks fun. for doing it. My pleasure. That was good. I enjoy talking to that man. Again, his his play, The Waverly Gallery with Elaine May and others, is playing at the Golden Theater through the end of January. Guitar, sure. <laughs>